0: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance editor, and you're listening to a special edition of Money Talks, with an ear very much on this week's World Economic Forum meeting in Davos. Coming up later, the author of The Second Machine Age, Eric Brynjolfsson, and his concerns about a looming industrial revolution.
2: You know, we have some tectonic forces that are changing the workforce. Fact is that median income in places like the United States is lower now than it was 20 years ago.
1: And away from the snows of the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, we hear from Kenneth Rogoff and what he feels is the curse of cash.
3: I think we actually need a physical currency forever, even when there's a digital central bank currency.
1: But to start, China's president Xi Jinping has been in Davos this week, the first time a Chinese head of state has attended the global forum. The economist's head of radio, Anne McElvoy, has this assessment of what he had to say. So I'm joined,
0: just after President Xi has finished speaking, by Yuan Ding, who's Dean of the China Europe Business School in Shanghai, and by my colleague John O'Sullivan, who's Economics Editor of The Economist. Just a word then, John, on globalisation. Some of us might think it's it's come to a pretty pass, really, when, when we need uh, the President of China to turn up at Davos and defend much embattled globalisation. What sort of case was he essentially making?
4: I was thinking as he, as he was speaking, and leaving aside the sort of providence of the the speech, thinking he sounded very much like a sort of 19th century economic liberal. He was making a case that uh, not only is uh, globalization good, but it's inevitable. He says it's driven by science and technology, and you can't hide from it. And if you do try to hide from it, he said, he used one, lots of wonderful metaphors. Possibly too many, but they were they were all pretty good. One of the metaphors was that you, it's like um, protectionism is like hiding in a in a room. You, you you're protected from the the wind and the the, the cold, but you're also you, you're shutting yourself off from from light and air. So there was lots of of all that sort of stuff, which is not just that you can't you, you shouldn't hide from it, but actually inevitably that you can't hide from it. And it's very much a kind of nineteenth century liberal progressive sort of view of sort of economic development alongside technology.
0: A 19th century progressive economic view. Juan, this sounds like he's been reading The Economist, but what do you think his purpose is in this speech?
5: We can still feel that uh, in many places there are some hints and send, send some warnings to U.S. I think that the real issue here is, uh, for me, is not a very, uh, how to say, proactive uh, approach but it's more defensive approach because he he sees that the globalization is in danger and it's very important for China in, especially in this critical moment to maintain uh, the growth path of China China needs globalization uh, it needs the the open door policy uh, both for uh, absorbing more investment he mentioned uh, from outside world but also to sell more products to the outside world to invest in outside world. So that's why I think he's more in a defensive uh, approach than a proactive approach. Uh, I feel the the real issue that uh, he didn't really address because he's talking about the overall benefit of globalization which I think it's a generally accepted uh, consensus but the real problem is the that he also mentioned about this inclusiveness and the, the equality. And I think it's not a, a equality between development and a developed countries uh, anymore. It's more about equality and uh, uh, inclusiveness within the country among different social classes. Because here, for me, definitely that was is the wrong vehicle to, to convey this message, because we are among the elite. And I think people all here, all love, globalization. But the problem is that we have to find an uh, effective way to communicate, or also, be, of course, to tackle the problem among this silent class in developed countries. Actually, they are the troublemakers recently because of are voting uh, against this globalization. They are stopping the, 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 the trends in these developed countries.
0: It's the silent class, Yuan is saying there, John, that needs to be addressed. Uh, of course, how does that also impact on China and on countries at the Chinese stage of development?
4: Well, I think the, the concern, uh, and if there was actually, as, as, as one said, there was actually quite a lot on what we need to do is make this more equitable and that we've got a, we haven't got the balance right between efficiency and equity. So it, was quite, it wasn't a, a varnished and polished case for globalization of the sort that the economists are sometimes accused of making. It's basically saying there are, it does create losers. We need to do something about that. And indeed, when he talked about going forward and the world needing a new growth model and talking about the fourth industrial revolution and automation and artificial intelligence, the concern was actually that those trends, his concern, or the concern that he was uh, talking about was that these trends are actually going to get worse. And so we need to manage these things better. So there was plenty of that actually in the speech when he was talking about that and I think one's right that the, the concern That he has is that as long as these issues go unaddressed in rich countries It's going to mean that there isn't a growth model for emerging economies not just China But poorer countries countries that are on the way up to where China was maybe 10 or 20 years ago that they haven't got a, a model that they can follow now Unless if if the if the rich world closes closes down to to trade and to investment
0: that's the the rich world and the impact and the way it's intended to be heard. One, but what do you think people will hear from this speech in your home country, in China? What will they think that he is setting out in terms of a path?
5: Uh, I think even in China, uh, recently, let's say for the past uh, uh, three, four uh, years since he's in presidency, uh, there's a lot of a uh, controversial and uh, debates about uh, where China is is heading. Okay. So I think this uh, speech here uh, is a very important speech to China because this will give a lot of Chinese uh, business world some comfort uh, about his commitment. I think here today we, I hear some very strong words, especially for a Chinese ear. Uh, for example, he re- re-mentioned something was already in the 18th uh, Party Congress uh, resolution about the market playing the determined role in the, in the distribution of the resources. So I think he mentioned explicitly today, he, he, he committed himself explicitly today about the, the, the direction of uh, opening and reform So in China. So I think all these and, and of course, he also mentioned many times the uh, reciprocity, because people started to worry about China were again in a model like uh, before, uh, put some protectionism and uh, only let People come in to to invest, but but he mentioned that he will equally treat the door open in the two directions. I think for this side, this will give a lot of uh, comfort and and and, and de- determination to the Chinese business world.
4: Yeah. And one is quite right that in the second part of the speech, if I can divide it up into two parts. One was much more, the second part, much more about the domestic policy in China. There was an awful lot about how, first of all, how rebalancing is happening. So he was talking about how the consumption share has gone up, uh, that services as part of, of the economy is growing up and that jobs are being created. He was pretty you know, pretty clear about where the problems are, uh, financial imbalances, regional problems, meaning the, probably the, the, the old industrial rust belt part of China, and the overcapacity problems, in didn't mention industries, but we know where they are, steel and so on. Uh, I thought what was interesting, though, is to go back to the first part of the speech, was there was also, I thought, a pitch for China as uh, a more reliable multilateral player, if you like. I hate to, that's very jargony, but someone who's going to, who's going to be a, a good interlocutor with other countries. So, for example, he said, and it seemed to be, you know, sort of rather arch Uh, part of the speech, we said, we're not jealous of other successes and won't complain about the opportunities that China's growth creates. And there's a lot of stuff about how China is investing abroad, China is uh, recycling its improved wealth to to drive uh, wealth in other places. And it seems to be a kind of Something of a pitch for we, we are now the, the sort of the, the global gravity gravitational center uh, we're driving things, and we are committed to multilateralism even if there's a retreat on the part of rich countries
0: so what would you like to see him do more of or say more of in the year ahead to clear up those areas that, that you thought were missing today one
5: I think in China if we, we talk about China now. There are several areas that we really need to work on. The first thing is really related. He mentioned one time about the aging population problem. And and we are all expecting his courage to really uh, ab- abolish the, the, the one-child policy. Now we have two-child policy, but still we have a policy. Do we need a policy now? All the, the consensus is clear that it's no need anymore. It's It's a problem now. And also on the other side, we look at the... the the problems we are having with the countryside. Uh, Do we have the courage to encourage uh, farmers to stay on their land and their house, which means to grant them an equal right uh, for for, for their uh, properties or land? And and the the third part, I think it's very important to to tackle in China, is how uh, we will speed up the reform of the service industry in China. Because all the... Uh, the, the fruits the reform uh, positive outcomes we can get from the manufacturing more or less are already there. Um, and then the service industry is the still highly regulated, healthcare, education. So how can we move forward in this area? This will give a big uh, push, like he mentioned, about the importance of the service and the consumption in China.
1: Mm-hmm. That was Anne McElvoy speaking with Yuan Ding, Dean of the China-Europe Business School in Shanghai, and with The Economist's economics editor, John O'Sullivan. So what do you think? Was the Chinese president's defence of globalisation a surprise? Or was it par for the course? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Now, Davos, by its very nature as a leading economic forum attract some of the most influential thinkers in the world today. and McElvoy has been talking to one of them.
0: I'm joined here in the studio at Davos by Eric Binyolfsson. Eric is professor of management at MIT, and he wrote a book called The Second Machine Age, which is widely deemed to be one of the inspiring forces behind this discussion of the fourth industrial revolution here at Davos. Hello, Eric. Hello. What kind of disruption did you have in mind when you called your book the second machine age?
2: Well, we were explicitly linking it to the first industrial revolution started in in Britain with the steam engine that, of course, uh, turned society from an agricultural society to an industrial society. The main thing about that one was that it mainly automated muscle work, you know, physical work. Now we're beginning to do the same thing with machines taking over a lot of mental
6: tasks.
0: I'm going to bring in from London, Tom Standage. Uh, Tom is deputy editor of The Economist, but he's also written a lot about technology and its impact in the workplace and on the way that we think about work and indeed all the issues that flow from it in terms of governments. Many people gathered here at Davos. Uh, Tom, what
6: is your big worry about the second machine age? Well, I think there is this question about how quickly all of this happens, but I think the big concern is also the fact that we seem to have a complete lack of policy response. And what I wanted to ask Eric was obviously people are talking about the fourth industrial revolution and the impact of automation in places like Davos, but they don't seem to be talking about it as part of the broader political discourse. So why do you think that is? Why do you think politicians don't seem to be taking this on?
2: I couldn't agree more. And I'm very concerned about that, that, you know, we have some tectonic forces that are changing the workforce and people are upset. uh, the fact is that median income in places like the United States is lower now than it was 20 years ago. But I think politicians have fundamentally misdiagnosed what's going on. Uh, they've focused on immigration and trade um, and you know perhaps corruption. While those are all significant issues, I th- most economists, certainly I, would not put them ahead of automation. Uh, the, the way the technology is eliminating a lot of middle class jobs and at the same time creating a lot of wealth in other parts of the economy is really the key driver be- behind these economic disruptions.
0: Could it be, Eric, that one of the reasons that they don't grasp it is, well, it's the oldest reason in the book, they don't know what to do about it?
2: I think that is a big part of it, although. We're coming up with a set of uh, solutions, you know, in the book that Andy McAfee and I wrote, Second Machine Age, we have three chapters where we lay out some solutions. I won't say that they are silver bullets that will solve all our problems, but if anything, the set of policy prescriptions that I'm hearing now from politicians probably go in the opposite direction and are going to exacerbate the problem rather than help Almost all economists would put education at the top of the list. Uh, There's a real fundamental change in the kinds of skills needed in the American workforce and that of other advanced countries, and that means we need to reinvent education to focus more on creativity, uh, interpersonal skills. A second area is uh, boosting entrepreneurship. Despite the technological disruption, there's actually been less. Uh, entrepreneurship, less new business creation than there was uh, 15, 20 years ago. And last but not least, I think there are policies um, like the earned income tax credit or wage subsidies that encourage work instead of uh, discouraging it the way our current tax system does.
6: Tom Standage, you like the sound of that? Yeah, we do. And those are the sorts of prescriptions that we have also advanced at the The Economist too. And indeed, in our current edition, we've got a special report that's about lifelong learning and how it's, you know, it's more difficult than it sounds. And at the moment, the danger is that lifelong learning and retraining programs will mainly benefit people who are already skilled, already computer literate, already in a position to take advantage of them. But I think going back to the politics, this emphasizes the the problem that politicians have with this, that those are not terribly inspiring policies uh, to put in your manifesto. There's no enemy, there's no bad guy. Uh, (laughs) It's much easier just to blame everything on Mexico or China or, you know, or evil corporations. And then the companies themselves that are investing in automation, Politicians in theory ought to approve of that, that's corporate investment, it's going to improve productivity, that's going to lead to GDP growth. But if you stand up for that as a politician, you're basically supporting people being put out of work by machines, aren't you? So you can see this is a very difficult needle for for politicians to thread. Is that fair, do you think, Eric? You have a
2: point that the perception is often that automation is the enemy, but the reality is that automation makes the pie bigger. It makes us more productive. It means we have more wealth that, in principle, could make us all better off. But it depends fundamentally on our responses. The same technologies can lead to a concentration of wealth or they can lead to shared prosperity. If we do some of the policies that I outlined a minute ago, I think we're going to have shared prosperity.
6: So is there a politician somewhere who gets this, and you would point to as you know, an exemplar of how you should talk about this.
2: There are very few that are talking about this, frankly, but I've had some great discussions with Mark Warner. He's a senator in the United States. Um, He was a tech executive and made a lot of money in the tech industry and then uh, joined politics. So I think he really gets it. And he spent a lot of time talking to... uh, to economists to understand the issue better. And then there are uh, politicians in other countries uh, in in Finland and Singapore and elsewhere that are moving their countries forward.
6: Eric, one of your prescriptions was the earned income tax credit, uh, which we're also keen on at The Economist. But among your list was not um, universal basic income, which is something that many countries have started to experiment with. Where do you stand on that? Do you think that might be an answer, or is it something to be reached for sort of as a last resort?
2: Yes and yes. (laughs) So I'm glad that people are experimenting with it. I don't suspect that it's the right thing to do in 2017 or even 2025, but it may be something that we resort to over time as automation continues to creep forward. One of the things that I've learned from my sociologist friends is that work is important not just as a source of income, but a source of dignity and meaning in life. And when work leaves a community, even if you replace the money, you don't replace those other factors. That's why Andy and I focus on the earned income tax credit and wage subsidies, which gives money to people, but also keeps them employed in the workforce, keeps them engaged in society. Um, And there's still plenty of work to be done. Let me just make, you know, there's no question about it. There are so many unsolved tasks in society that we still should... Put people to work addressing those things, whether it's in education or in healthcare or cleaning the environment. So until um, all those problems are solved and only humans can do most of them, I'm not ready to say, let's just put everybody on basic income.
0: We're talking here in the week of the inauguration of a new president with lots of questions and anxieties flowing from that. So I'm going to ask you both, put you on the spot. If we were to give you your half a minute pitch to Donald Trump about why he has to take this seriously what would it be eric
2: well i would emphasize that the disruption we've seen in the past decade is nothing compared to what we're going to see in the next decade the technologies i see coming down the pipeline in artificial intelligence and digitization more broadly are just awesome and if we embrace them and use that to create greater wealth we're all going to be better off but if we try to freeze the old jobs, the old industries, that will never work. We have an opportunity here to create widely shared prosperity by reinventing education, by boosting entrepreneurship, by changing our tax structure. We should embrace this and we can make America and the world greater than it's ever been before.
6: Tom? Well, I'm sure uh, Donald Trump has people around him telling this because he does have some um, some tech people quite close to him. Uh, but I think the, the argument is really that the prescription that he has to try and make America great again, protectionism, uh, setting, you know, starting trade wars and things like that, if all that comes to pass, that's not going to be good for the economy and not going to be good for jobs, at which point he's going to have to figure out what the real culprit here is. And uh, if, in fact, automation and technology are a bigger factor than trade and globalization and offshoring in reducing the opportunities that seem to be what has motivated an enormous part of Donald Trump's base to vote for him, then he's going to actually have to deal with the real problem. So I think that's why he needs to uh, start reading books like Eric's if he's going to get on top of that.
1: Eric and Tom, thanks very much.
6: Thank you both. It's been a pleasure
2: talking to you both.
1: Our thanks to Eric Binyovson, Professor of Management at MIT, and The Economist's Head of Radio, Anne McElvoy, and our Deputy Editor, Tom Standage. Finally, let's put the meetings and debates at Davos to one side. Last week, we brought you the first in a series of special reports from the recent American Economic Association conference, looking at how the US healthcare system for humans was learning lessons from how we insure our pets. Well, we're back with AEA delegates in Chicago, and this time it's to talk about the curse of cash.
2: Hello, I'm Ryan Avent, economics columnist with The Economist, at the annual meetings of the American Economic Association in Balmy, Chicago, where it's about 5 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And I'm speaking with Ken Rogoff, an economist at Harvard University, former chief economist at the IMF, uh, and the author of the recent book, The Curse of Cash, on
3: moving to a less cash society. And, Ken, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, Thank you for speaking to me. Your your new book, The Curse of Cash, makes a persuasive case that relying less on cash in society would be be good for a lot of reasons. It would re-
2: reduce the, the you know the money that people can use to to evade taxes or that, that that organized crime uses. It can make fighting recessions easier. I'm curious,
3: why do you argue for a a, a less cash society rather than a cash less society? Well, I think there are fundamental points like privacy. Um, when you have weather-related problems and you have power outages, which we're very familiar with in the Northeast United States and uh, other, other kinds of problems. I think we actually need a physical currency forever. Even when there's a digital central bank currency, we're gonna wanna have a physical currency. Now, the, the day may come when even that is not private, when they're taking your photo as you're making the purchase. Um, I explain in the book how the day is likely gonna come when cash registers can instantly read serial numbers, they can match it up to your photo, you can tell the story in other ways. But I think for uh, we want to preserve uh, having a physical currency. What we want to do is strike a better balance. I think we, if we got rid of large denomination notes, and there are other approaches, but if we got rid of, rid of large denomination notes, it would allow ordinary people to do pretty much everything they want to do. You can carry hundred thousand dollars in ten dollar bills in a small, modest-sized briefcase. You can, you know, buy whatever you need and make it more difficult for people hoarding really vast sums evading sales taxes evading regulation you certainly hear these stories coming out of the periphery countries in europe where the authorities find 60 million euro on a company and they find out that all the suppliers are paid in cash and everyone's paid in cash and no one's paying the VAT tax It's it's a very widespread problem, and I'm not even talking about crime. But I I think you can strike a balance. There are other ideas. You can limit the size of cash transactions, as many European countries have done. You can wire cash registers, as Sweden has done. I'm looking for a light-handed approach. I'm sort of surprised in the response to the book, how many people don't even turn to page one and assume I'm getting rid of cash, which I think would be uh, foolish. I mean, then the privacy issue is huge, and... Um, robustness to weather-related problems.
6: Ken Rogoff, thank you very much for
3: joining us. Ryan, thank you.
1: That was Ryan Avant talking about the curse of cash with Ken Rogoff, macroeconomist at Harvard University. Well, that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time in London, This is The Economist.
0: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.